Hello, my name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with... I'm not great. I'm epochal. I'm <laughs> monumental. <laughs> I'm uh, Will Sloan. <laughs> oh, wow. Is that how you can introduce yourself now every time? <laughs> That's right. Uh, and today, we're talking about Klaus Kinski. The bad boy of German cinema. The very bad, bad boy, boy, yeah. In fact. Like, Klaus Kinski was an awful person. And... In the kind of way that it's impossible to talk about without getting very serious. Well, I mean, I remember, I think I think it came out in 2013 that his daughter, not Nastasia, but his daughter Pola Kinski, said that she was repeatedly raped and mm-hmm. sexually abused by him for decades. And I know that uh, Nastasia said that she wasn't, but that she sensed lost in his eyes well, or something. Kinski in his autobiography, uh, Kinski Uncut, or what was the original title? Uh, All I Need Is Love was what it was also called. He alludes to um, sexually assaulting Natasha, and she actually uh, she against sued him. him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because of that. Well, when this information came out, it definitely, well, obviously it complicates uh, your, your understanding of him. I feel like maybe even more so than usual because he's somebody who's legend in addition to the fact that he's about as charismatic as an actor has ever been. Mm -hmm. He's somebody whose legend is very much built on his off-screen excesses. The fact that he was this man of great passions, Mm -hmm. this man who was constantly causing trouble on set, you know? And that kind of legend is interlinked with Werner Herzog Mm -hmm. and their experiences making five movies together. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, when you hear of how crazy he was on set and how wild he was, without any specifics, it's easy to just imagine, oh, wow, what, like, imagination and passion that he brought to his roles on screen. Isn't it just elevated by the fact of how, you know, wild he was in real life? And those two things, I think, still continue to kind of propel his mystique because I remember it was like Phil Lord or Chris Miller, one of the directors of the Lego movie, had like Klaus Kinski from Aguirre as their like banner header for the longest time. Yeah. So he's moved to the point where it's like, oh, you know, we can just push that aside and just enjoy the performances on screen, which I don't, I mean... It's impossible for me to watch them now without thinking of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think about it every single time I see mm. them. But, you know, when the accusations by Pola came out, I sort of thought, I don't know how I'm going to be able to look at this guy ever mm-hmm. again. And then maybe two years later, I revisited Fitzcarraldo. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it and thinking, holy fuck, this guy's good in this movie. I mean, there's uh, the reason that people talk about Kinski is that he like pops right off of screen. And that kind of personal stuff is just there in front of you and like part of his appeal is this idea that he was on the edge of sanity Mm -hmm. yeah and that he would channel his madness into his art or something i mean Uh, i think that from what i've read most people surmise he was he suffered from schizophrenia mm -hmm. and other mental illnesses and i think he was probably also abused as a child himself his Mm -hmm. autobiography kinski uncut alludes to this Mm -hmm. it it suggests sexual encounters with his sister and his mother and there has been you know much debate about how much of that book is truthful but Mm -hmm. i mean i think knowing what we know about the cyclical nature of this sort of abuse Mm -hmm. uh, i i find it easy to believe so where did kinski get started will i mean i'm i'm a little sketchy on kinski's early life 
Um, I mean, everybody is because I, all we really have is his accounting of it, and it's mostly fabrications. Well, you know, Kinski Uncut, his autobiography, is like an extraordinary book. It's done in this first-person stream of consciousness, always in the present tense. It's like you're you're in a hurricane with mm-hmm. him through his life. And you're not quite sure how much of it is like him spilling his guts onto the page and how much of it is him being calculated, trying to create a best-selling autobiography. So, you know, fully a third of the book is just pornographic. Mm -hmm. It's very graphic sexual encounters. And then... Like the Burt Ward book. Like the Burt Ward book. (laughs) Or the Mickey Rooney book. Burt Ward, the Klaus Kinski of America. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, another man who just pops off the screen every time you see him, <laughs> Burt Ward. Uh, but when Kinski is talking about his early life, he's talking about how impoverished he was, and and you know having to having to wrestle with the rats for mm. food on the ground. I I know that Herzog has claimed that he actually came from a well-to-do family. I don't I don't know uh, what's true or not. I believe he was institutionalized for a time growing up. Yeah, and uh, institutionalized a few other times after that, sometimes as a suicide risk. I believe he's Polish by birth. He fought for Germany in the Second World War. And after uh, serving in the army, he made a reputation as an actor on the stage, uh, you know, working with great theater companies. And eventually uh, he, he created a reputation for himself as this like traveling monologist. He would go around reciting passages of Shakespeare. And or um, his monologue on the great man, Jesus Christ. Well, one of the things I watched this week was this notorious performance that he gave, which was filmed from the early 1970s, where he would perform as Jesus. You know, he would just dress like he normally dressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would get on stage, he would very intensely read Bible passages. He, he would often get on a podium, so elevated above everybody else. And mm-hmm. there was a specific reason for that. Well, it's such a strange thing to watch. If you've seen the movie My Best Fiend, it opens with some footage mm-hmm. from that. Kinski, you know, looking very much like he's just containing all the anger in the world beneath his surface. He's intensely reading these Bible passages and then occasionally he'll erupt and you'll start yelling like do unto others as you would have them do unto you and the audience hates it most of the performance is made up of him yelling at the audience as they yell back sometimes getting closer to the stage and trying to like interrupt him or drag him off of it it's such a strange thing to watch because it's a youngish german audience and sometimes they'll be yelling at him fascist or Mm -hmm. things like that so I guess in the early 1970s in Germany, the the sight of this man uh, ranting and raving about Jesus on stage poked at some sore spots. Well, you also get the sense that a lot of these people are there just to sort of laugh at mm-hmm. him, like he's he, a joke. Like, yeah, like this madness that he brought was the entertainment. That's what they wanted to kind of provoke in him. Well, this Jesus performance was done a year before Aguirre, The Wrath of God came out, mm-hmm. and Kinski at this time would have basically been known for being the guy from a lot of spaghetti westerns. Mm -hmm. So he was a bit of a joke and he was like a tabloid figure too. So Kinski, people need to understand that he was omnipresent in Italian exploitation. Even before the uh, Werner Herzog stuff, if you like put on like the fighting fist of Shanghai Joe, oh, there's Klaus Kinski in the movie as one of the villains. Have you seen that one? I have. It's great. Yeah, so have I. I I like it too. Yeah, Kinski... Pops up for 10 minutes as, I think, a uh, freelance scalp hunter or something. I think he gets his eyes gouged out as well in the film. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. 
so, like, he was one of the backbones of these films that weren't very much appreciated in their time. They were popular and they were everywhere, but he was just like a jobbing actor. The thing you often hear about Klaus Kinski was that he was this extremely talented actor who would do anything for money. Mm -hmm. And so people like Werner Herzog will often say, oh, you know, he made five great films with me, but aside from that, what what else has he ever done? I mean, increasingly, I think in the last 10 or 15 years, his non-Herzog movies have come to be more appreciated. So, like, he'll be in movies like Joe D'Amato's Death Smiles on a Murderer. Great film. (laughs) uh, Or A Bullet for the General or The Great Silence. Lots of good spaghetti westerns. Lots of bad spaghetti westerns, too. Lots of bad spaghetti westerns. Lots of bad films. Oh, look, there's Klaus Kinski and Jess Franco's Jack the Ripper. (laughs) I kind of like him in Jack the Ripper, actually. I mean, the movie's not good, though. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's not one of my favorites favorite uh, Jess Franco movies. He's actually in four Jess Franco movies, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because he had this reputation as this guy who would cause chaos on whatever set he was on. I mean, most of the movies Kinski is in, he's only in for five or ten minutes. Yeah. Probably because he was either fired or they knew that's how long they could keep him on set before he ran off. And they just needed his name for the Mm -hmm. poster. But uh, Jess Franco worked with him four times and said he got along with him fine. So Hmm. uh, who knows? I mean, it all depends. Like any person who has these kind of fits of anger of like what mood you get him in because there's nothing specific that could trigger Klaus Kinski Mm -hmm. it was just whatever at that moment you hear people tell stories about it and it's like someone saying cut could trigger him off or someone saying action or if they changed that they'd be angry that they changed it you know like many people who are abusers it's not a specific thing they want to make it feel like it's that person's fault, but it's not. Well, I get the sense that Kinski was just a big old bully. Mm-hmm. So, like, whenever he wasn't the center of attention, uh, he would he would rage. And like a bully, he had the thinnest skin and was incredibly sensitive. I read an interview with Bruno Gans, who was in Herzog's Nosferatu, mm-hmm. and they asked him about working with Kinski, and he said that uh, Kinski would get angry, but he would always unload it on, you know, crew members. Yeah, or I mean, people. Herzog says the same statistic thing which is like he'd take it out on an assistant camera person Mm -hmm. instead of like the other actors of the director there's that famous clip which was shot for burden of dreams which ended up being used in my best fiend Mm -hmm. where it's kinski on the fitzcarraldo set yelling and yelling and yelling at that i think assistant cameraman Mm -hmm. or something and herzog goes uh this was one of his more minor arguments so (laughs) i just continued on doing uh the next scene his uh, ranting is subtitled in that clip and there's a (laughs) point where he goes lick my ass man (laughs) (laughs) see that's funny because we can see it in that context while if i was on that set i would be like this is awful get this person off the set well i would like to talk about this a bit because Mm -hmm. i revisited my best fiend this week i did too and i also watched cobra uh, verde his last um effort that he made with herzog yeah and i think you watched too the making of cobra verde i did it's called project africa yeah which is an incredible documentary. I think. It's, it's like a 50-minute documentary. And actually, what I found the most fascinating about it is that you actually see Herzog not as a mystical narrator, but as someone struggling to make a movie. Well, yeah, there's a scene in Project Africa where the extras are basically going to be revolting because they haven't been paid mm. yet. And you see Herzog trying to keep them there. It's like, this is blackmail! <laughs> this is blackmail! But you even see him just by um, the camera being like, ah, we should use like a 50 millimeter lens. Oh, maybe mm. we can do that. Maybe we can put it on the dolly or use a 70. Mm-hmm. And that's something that as Herzog has evolved as a public figure, he's kind of taken over 
away mm-hmm. as if he just walks on and mystically the movie just like you uh-huh. know comes outward from him yeah and that's what I like and you also get a lot of you know Madden Klaus Kinski running around there's a great bit in that documentary where Kinski is like looking at himself in a mirror and like He's flicking his hair and making sure that he looks good or a scene where he just talking with I guess an assistant of some kind waiting in a castle and he's just kind of like amping himself up and then they're like alright we need you and he runs out and the scene in the movie is he's like grabbing at a wood thing and being like no lift it lift it and he just maddens himself up and you know arguing with Herzog over the most minor things mm-hmm. uh, My Best Fiend which was released in 1999 is Herzog's feature length I guess meditation mm. on his working relationship with Klaus Kinski. Kinski was the real crazy one. That's the thesis, I would say. I think the movie is a little bit disingenuous mm-hmm. because it comes to us, you know, Herzog saying, oh, it's a, a loving tribute to Klaus and all his contradictions. But really, it's Herzog kind of being a bit of a petty bitch. <laughs> kind of like, you know, Kinski claimed that he loved nature, but he would never leave the sat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kinski would do this. Kinski would do that. I would have to be the calming force in all of this Kinski madness. And the issue that Herzog never brings up in the documentary is he's enabling Kinski in all of these situations. Well, we see footage from Aguirre, The Wrath of God, where uh, Kinski is like wielding a sword and he's attacking people. It's footage from the movie. And then Herzog interviews one of the extras from the film. And the extra said, God, he just lunged at me with that sword. And thank God I was wearing a helmet or I would have died. And And then he shows the scar on his head. Look at the scar that I have. And then he says this story about how uh, later that same day, Kinski was pissed that he wasn't the center of attention, so he just fired a gun. Yeah, into a hut where there was like 25 extras, and it like shot off one of the fingers of one of the extra, and Herzog is like, <laughs> like laughing. And, you know, I feel complicated about this because, you know, I love Aguirre the Wrath of God, mm-hmm. I love Fitzcarraldo, and I think those movies would not be as good without Klaus Kinski. But if you're going to make a movie like My Best Fiend, you have to ask yourself the difficult questions. Was it ethical? Was it moral and responsible to keep bringing Klaus Kinski onto my sets? No, No. it wasn't. Because you would put him in a situation where he could hurt people, which he did. And I'm sure Herzog would say like, oh, but I kept him in control. Like he could have been somewhere else creating trouble, but I had him here. And it's like... No, but he still created all the trouble anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So don't make a documentary where it's all about how actually you were the calm, stabilizing Mm -hmm. force. Say, yeah, I'm a guy who believes the ends justify the means. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what the documentary essentially says. And I I can sleep at night knowing that. (laughs) Yeah, but it never does. Yeah. So instead, all the film students watch and go, ah, wasn't their relationship crazy? I I also think uh, My Best Fiend has some claims in it that sound a little dubious to me. (laughs) Like there's that part where... Uh, Herzog is talking about Kinski's autobiography and he says oh well you know that passage where he talks about me I actually helped him write that passage yeah sure you can say that now and Kinski can't jump in and say differently (laughs) yeah I mean he probably would because he was a monster Uh, so we tried to avoid the Herzog films we've kind of talked about them when we did a Herzog episode and we watch a lot of his latter day pictures Mm -hmm. like David Schmoller's Crawl Space which is a film that uh, isn't very well regarded but it is remembered because 
uh, Schmoller made a documentary years later in which he discussed his experiences with Kinski on set. Yeah, the documentary is called Please Kill Mr. Kinski. It's maybe 10 minutes long, and Schmoller saying that after Kinski started so many fights and caused so many delays, the Italian financier said, let's kill him and collect the insurance money. <laughs> yeah. And then Charles Band, the American financier, apparently said, oh, well, that that sure would be too bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, apparently cooler heads prevailed and they continued making the movie. And the film itself is just a, a collection of scenes where Kinski can glower. <laughs> I mean, kind of the only reason it's worth watching, mm-hmm. I think, is for Kinski. And you can tell as well that the film is incomplete because of Kinski's... Um, unwillingness to do certain things well he plays i guess like a nazi soldier Mm. or something who in the 1980s now owns an apartment building and you know he travels around the crawl space uh, peering Mm. on people as they have beautiful women yeah 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 and uh his house is filled with traps home alone style (laughs) yep and uh vietnam style there's a good scene towards the end when he dresses up in full nazi regalia and he puts lipstick on mm-hmm. and uh, does the whole salute i was surprised to find the film was centered completely around kinski like that was mm. david schmoller and the screenwriter's mistake is making a <laughs> film all about this main character the other women characters are kind of superfluous to the narrative mm-hmm. it's all about kinski and when you have him for that amount of time, that's when you run into trouble and you can't actually do what you need to do. Yeah. You know, like a lot of those people who are very, were very um, difficult on set, like Oliver Reed, you hear stories of people being like, oh, but when it was time to work, they worked. You never hear that about Kinski. Well, especially towards the end, like the lighting crew would spend mm-hmm. a long time setting up the shots, then he would just refuse to do the shot as it had been planned. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole day wasted, basically. Yeah. And at this point, it's becoming difficult to justify using Kinski if he's going to make that much trouble. I mean, Herzog was probably still going to keep working with him after that. but I, uh, Apparently, he was very badly behaved on the set of Cobra Verde. I also know that one of Kinski's last movies, Nosferatu in Venice, mm. had a very troubled production where um, Kinski actually uh, sexually assaulted people on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what? because you sent me a bit of text that Luigi Cozzi wrote, the um, director that came on after Ricardo Freda left the set like he always does yeah and uh yeah it was pretty graphic and um bad stuff yeah speaking of late period kinski films we watched final period kinski we watched his very last movie which also happens to be the only film he directed Mm. and was a long cherished dream project of his called kinski paganini and kinski wanted herzog to direct it and herzog read the script and went i i can't do anything with this film it is impossible can you believe it had a script and so um (laughs) kinski went i'll make this movie paganini being a famous violinist some would say the greatest violinist ever mm-hmm. um also seen in the luigi cozzi film speaking of him paganini horror i guess there was a wave of paganini exploitation in the <laughs> yeah. 80s and so uh this version called kinski paganini um has klaus kinski as a titular figure who spends uh in the director's cut that we watched two hours just kind of walking in slow motion around very dimly lit sets. Like, you can't even see what's going on. Uh, He shot it in natural light, which was a terrible idea. (laughs) Playing his violin so well, it's bringing women to climax. 
Yeah, and I mean, if you've ever read Kinski's autobiography, this movie is basically an adaptation of that book, mm-hmm. even though it's ostensibly about Paganini. I don't think I learned anything about Paganini. <laughs> no. But, but I definitely learned a lot about what Klaus Kinski thinks of himself. Yeah, that he's <laughs> awesome, that women love him, and that he makes crowds go wild. Yeah, and that his, his sheer artistry mm-hmm. uh, is so powerful, so sexual, mm-hmm. that not only does it make women orgasm just playing the violin, but it makes all of society's blue noses, all of the all the elites, all the establishment think this man has to be locked up. And that's in the film, but it's probably difficult to parse considering that it is essentially a music video set to Paganini music. There's no story. Mm-hmm. It's a series of disconnected scenes many of them basically the same Mm -hmm. you got klaus and a top hat and an overcoat walking in slow motion down a street you've got many scenes where it's a dimly lit set and klaus is in the distance saying something that is inaudible (laughs) yep (laughs) (laughs) oftentimes he'll cut to two horses having sex or like a rabbit's head being cut off like real first year film school like aren't you shocked kind of stuff well you did mention my favorite scene in the movie which is this woman who's just thinking about paganini and is masturbating and then she looks out the window and sees these horses fucking for real Mm -hmm. i hasten to add i mean what can you say about it it's it's boring (laughs) that's what i could say about it. i would say that there's probably like 10 minutes of first-rate exploitation shit in this movie and then a a lot of incredible boredom it is an amazing illustration of a man who thinks like well i could do what all these directors i've worked with pull off so meekly and then he delivers this which is a nothing and the only insight he has the reason that he made the movie is i'm kind of like paganini yeah that's really my life story yeah and how amazing i am and you know it's the same thing with his jesus performance Mm -hmm. Uh, the the only thing about his jesus performance that he wants to communicate is you know i'm persecuted just Mm -hmm. like jesus was which is why it's strange that the audience of that performance thinks that there's something else going on yeah Uh, i mean they're not thinking about that they're just seeing an angry man on stage when really klaus is getting this energy from them because he's like i feel like jesus even though his version of jesus as he says would whip anybody who got in in his face yeah and so i think that it's easier for us to watch klaus kinski films now because he's long dead he's not making any money off this yeah there's no ethical consideration Mm -hmm. to it yeah but like at the time when the movies were coming out i think that would be a little bit more difficult if you were aware of his um problems that he had i mean it's interesting he got so much work Mm -hmm. Uh, i also know that after the herzog movies there was this brief period in the 80s when he was like very briefly in a lot of major american movies too Mm -hmm. like he was in billy wilder's buddy buddy Mm -hmm. he was in james toback's uh movie love and money uh interesting (laughs) meeting of the minds there oh boy he was in the little drummer girl with diane keaton Mm -hmm. um like how did major american movies have this guy i always think about this like looking at his filmography of how difficult he was and how famously difficult he was Mm -hmm. but he's worked so much in over 140 pictures he also was very proud about all the things he turned down because he would always claim oh i i only i sell myself to the highest bidder sure you did klaus well he turned down raiders of the lost ark he did and he made venom instead there is (laughs) and he would always brag about oh i turned down ken russell i turned down fellini i turned down. there's no way he would have lasted on raiders of the last ark like steven spielberg would have fired him at a certain point his marquee name which i think is what kept him in a lot of these movies Mm-hmm. Uh, would not have been enough. It would yeah. he would have been kicked to the curb. Yeah, I wonder how he behaved on the Billy Wilder movie. Probably terribly. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no 
that uh, My Best Fiend documentary has um, a part where they talk about Wojtek and um, uh, Herzog goes, ah, we found the one woman who had a good time with uh, Kinski. Yeah. And it's like, okay, there's only one? <laughs> like all the other actors that he worked with that he just treated awfully and were like scarred by having to share the same set with him <laughs> I, well yeah my best fiend makes the occasional like disingenuous attempt to be like oh yeah well he actually was a bit of a softy sometimes and he would have his tender moments and it's like well okay sure everybody has their tender moments mm-hmm. um i realized that what we haven't talked a lot about is him as an actor yeah and and maybe it's worth addressing because you know there is there is a reason that he's a legend mm-hmm. and uh, something that occurred to me when i was watching this jesus performance is we always remember the scenes where he uh, yells and rants and raves he's a good ranter but in most of his movies he's very still there are so many movies where he just is there and he smolders and there's something about his presence there's something about the way he 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 moves his eyes and the way he manipulates his gigantic mouth where it's like you just know that there's so much raging beneath the surface. Well, it's like the skeletal face that he has. Mm-hmm. That's why he would appear so often in posters, is that there's something striking about the way that he looks, which makes it hilarious that he's like making sure his hair looks nice, the ratty <laughs> blonde hair that he has falling over his forehead. One of his very best performances is in Sergio Carbucci's The Great Silence. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, he's very kindly through the mm-hmm. whole thing. He plays this horrible assassin, but he but he's always very unctuous and polite through the whole thing. Because you know that there's something... He, he, he hardly has to do anything to communicate all the evil underneath I there. mean, he does the same thing in A Bullet for the General, where he mm. plays, like, the kindly brother of the two main uh, Mexican bandits. Yeah. Is that you can tell that there's something just ready to explode. Mm. And even if he's, like, the nice guy, there's something off with him. Just because of the way that he looks and the way that mm. he kind of holds himself on screen. And it's not just God-given, right? It's not just... It's the way that he actually acts. He really knows how to manipulate his face Mm -hmm. um, and his body. And that's why, because he's so iconic, that even in the Italian exploitation films, people would go to him. Mm -hmm. He's not only recognizable, but he brings that aura to the whole production. Mm -hmm. Now, is that related to how difficult he was? Could he have been like a really nice guy and still (laughs) brought that to the screen? Yeah, probably. Well, you know that he's dangerous. Yes. Which adds danger to mm-hmm. his presence. And it is that kind of like weird contrast that he is in so many movies and he was so difficult. Mm. And you know that in whatever part he plays, you, you think if he plays a bad guy in a movie, it's like, okay, this bad guy is capable of anything because mm-hmm. Klaus is playing him. He has an amazing filmography. He, I mean, he on must some ha- level. He must have had the greatest agent in the world yeah who could sell people on klaus kinski like this even though that he was known as the most difficult person ever all right so so. uh, justin do we have any letters this week we do have letters as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter starts i've entered the worst part of a construction job i've been doing for three months and the only thing that gets me through the nine hour days of seclusion and soreness and grunt work is mainlining these increasingly quality episodes your tom cruise episode sent chills down my spine gary graver a cautionary tale of workaholicism and sacrifice and of course the jess franco episode oh the ecstasy of a truly free artist i should just say that the chills going down your spine during the tom cruise episode <laughs> were actually the thetans escaping your body <laughs> 
Yeah, me and Will have turned into Scientologists since then. Uh, the Tom Cruise organization reached out to us and uh, made us see the error of our ways. Listening to our podcast is a stress test, actually. All of this is made legend-inspiring by you and Will Sloan Esquire's passion and acceptance. <laughs> Listening to five or six episodes a day. Oh boy, oh, I would not recommend nice. that. <laughs> I don't even want to spend that much time with myself in a day. <laughs> Characters start to appear with regularity. Wells, Goddard, Kumar, the Woodman. <laughs> their obsessions <laughs> bubbling to the surface. And I start to see grids of film history all interlinked. The constant fight between quantity and quality. Freedom versus constraint. The exalted and the disreputable. Auteurism versus collaboration. Is it the auteurs who make the world the film? Or is film itself the magnet that draws in all the craftspeople, dreamers and shucksters alike? And then through its sheer expressive power, equalizes them as creators all the same. Wow, this is very beautiful. I'd love to see an episode on teleplays. Oh, that's actually a really good yeah. idea. Like, you know, I I'm thinking of... Even, like, the live uh, cinema stuff that was done by pe people like John Frankenheimer. Uh, yeah, like uh, like the Sydney Entertainer Lumet. with Mickey Rooney, yeah. for instance. Because that's stuff that's almost been forgotten. I mean, Criterion did the Golden Age of Television mm -hmm. box set, but I, I've never watched any of those, really. I, I watched The Entertainer with, mm -hmm. with Mickey Rooney. That's the only one I've seen, and I would love to explore that. Or something like some of the strange stage-to-screen adaptations... When that was the old Hollywood norm, a la Bug or Altman's play adaptations. Huh, that's a, actually yeah. a really interesting idea as well. Or an episode about playwrights or writers who moved into screenwriting or filmmaking, especially since so many of them seem to have lost themselves or their authorial touch in the process, like Nathaniel West. You know, we've never done a screenwriter, and we've talked about it, but it's like, I guess Patty Chayefsky is like one who has like a like an authorial voice. I mean, most of the screenwriters you think of who are recognizable authors are also writer-directors. Mm -hmm. I guess Charlie Kaufman is another example. But um, he is also like a writer-director yeah. as well, or moved into that. And the email continues, probably too niche, but in general, it's illuminating to hear about people like Carolee Schneeman, who worked in other art practices or jobs, and eventually became filmmakers along with the other work that they do. I mean, a lot of people listen to the Carolee Schneeman episode. I wonder if it was because she had recently passed Away. <laughs> Possibly. People uh, uh, Google searching her. I don't mm -hmm. know. The range of topics lately has been vast and inspirational, especially the deep dive into what can seem like entire alternate universes of film history, like the Paul Nashie episode on Spanish monster movies or the old movie serials episode. I mean, those ones are always fun to do, but it's always tough as well because we know nothing about Feels it. Feels like a lot of work, yeah, yeah. But, but I enjoy it, yeah. Thank you for the transportations. I want to quit every day a little less. Nate Wilson. Well, thanks so much. That's very sweet. P.S. Do Claire Denis for the views. Nanette and Bonnie and U.S. Go Home are so fun. Yeah, Claire Denis never really came up. Too popular. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we will do Claire Denis eventually. I'm did fine. High Life come out theatrically? Yeah, yeah, it oh, it did. Out. Ah, we missed that window. Yeah. <laughs> to get all those clicks. Well, thank you very much for that letter. Uh, very um, appreciative. And a lot of good suggestions there as well. And our next letter goes, Hey, Justin and Will. Love your show. I recently had to make a solo road trip from Washington State to California, and I am not ashamed to admit that I listen to your podcast for 12 hours straight. Oh my God. Door to door. These these letters, <laughs> I, I, we, do, we don't make this podcast to be listened to 12 hours straight. I, you know, but I listen to podcasts, like when I get into a new one, like in quick success. I just I just hate myself so much that I can't <laughs> fathom somebody listening to me that long. Thanks for the company. 
Earlier this week, I went to a local independent theater to see what I thought was going to be a screening of Hitchcock's Notorious. After the coming attractions, the 2009 biopic about the Notorious (laughs) B.I.G., also called Notorious, evidently began to play. The mostly white 70s-plus audience was visibly and audibly distraught by the opening club music and gunshot sound effects. A staff member informed us that the theater had received the wrong movie, and our options were to get a refund or to stay for the online stream they had found the actual movie. They didn't keep watching the Notorious B.I.G. film? <laughs> About two thirds stayed, but we lost a bunch as soon as the, as we saw the low-quality YouTube-grade video up on the big screen. I myself stayed, but I'm being honest, that's mostly because I was already sitting down. My question, do you have any strange non-audience-related movie experiences? I'm not talking about bad audiences, but rather odd theater occurrences. Thanks for your show, love the journal, love Teddy Bomb, and I'm looking forward to Impossible Horror as soon as I can find a minute for the beautiful Blu-ray. Available at impossiblehorror.com. Take care, and thanks again. Also available on diabolicdvd.com, which I don't know if I mentioned this on this podcast. So if you want to order it from the greatest... um, DVD and Blu-ray website online, you can go there and order a bunch of other stuff as well. Mm. Take care and thanks again, David. P.S. I am contractually obligated to say thanks for recommending Detour. Seriously, though, thanks for recommending Detour. Oh, fantastic. Okay, uh, strange movie-going experiences. You know, the one that comes to mind, I remember 10 years ago, I went to Reg Hart Cineforum. <laughs> oh, no. What is Cineforum, for people that don't know? Uh, Cineforum. Why is it your obsession? Well, I Have mean, we talked about this on the podcast? I mean, the, the Cineforum is... is ah, perfect for being on the Class Kitsky episode, too. This, this strange man, Reg Hart, who runs a little movie theater out of his home on Bathurst Street in Toronto... And, you know, he's he's fought with the city over the years many, many times. What's m- most famous about him, though, is that his ads, which are just on normal legal sheets of paper, are everywhere in Toronto. These black and white ads advertising the LSD Film Fest are like, what is it, cartoons? Uncensored Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yes. And yeah, or Nosferatu set to the music of Radiohead. This has been going on for... 30 years? Yeah. Longer? Pretty much... Also, the same movies over and over and over again. Yeah, uh, Reg seems to be in trouble with the law right now. Yes. Um, you can Google that if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember that 10 years ago, I went to see the movie Cocksucker Blues there, which is this notorious Rolling Stones documentary mm. band. And I remember that there was this guy who was also there who looked like a very, a very old, like, long stringy hair like an old burnout basically mm. and whenever there would be music in the movie he would get up and dance and he'd go <laughs> rock and roll which is uh, a strange thing to- did he turn around and he's like I'm you Will I'm <laughs> you from the future <laughs> yeah uh, so that was a particularly memorable one I remember he said not crowd stuff but I think of a screening of Sukiyaki Western Django I saw at the Young and Dundas AMC and there was one man in the front row who was like woo yeah but he was saying it like at the right parts of the movie like he wasn't just screaming randomly during the film it would be like somebody would do something cool with the gun and the guy would go yeah awesome and then he got up halfway through and left (laughs) so i guess he wasn't enjoying it that much as far as like weird stuff happening on screen that like surprised the audience when we showed uh mad foxes the latest blast film society it broke down in the middle of the ramp up to like the most violent scene in the movie. And then we came up on stage, we talked a little bit, we fixed it and it jumped right in when one of the bad guys is cutting open someone and guts are spilling anywhere, everywhere. And the audience was like, whoa, 
<laughs> it just kind of like knocked them for a loop. So that that was a fun time. Other than that, about like different movies being played, I can't, I don't think that's ever happened when I've gone. No, sometimes I mean, you hear stories. You've been that. horrified by just like shitty DVDs playing up on screen. Oh god, I mean that's the worst when you yeah. go see when you go see a movie at a rep theater and they project a DVD, not mm-hmm. even a Blu-ray. I remember once seeing Fellini's Satyricon. <laughs> On a DVD, which, I mean, if you're going to watch that movie, watch it in a good version. Yeah, I, like, there's so much smoke and fog in that, that blown up, it's just pixels oh, on screen. Awful, awful. I mean, the best is, and we've spoken about this before, is me and Will, when we went to go see uh, Godzilla versus King Kong. <laughs> yeah, there was this one guy in the audience there who, you know, I don't know what was his problem, but he kept yelling through the whole movie, Godzilla's gonna win! Yeah, and just endlessly, and we were sitting there watching a YouTube rip i assume it looked awful <laughs> it looked awful i mean we, we left after 30 minutes yeah basically. we're like what we're like why are we here yeah. <laughs> it's not worth it and supposedly for somebody else i heard that they kicked the guy out i'm sure that was hard to do because he was in the middle of a row and he and he actually like tried to like struggle and not he didn't want he did not want to leave yeah uh well thanks very much for the letter maybe and we I, should have stuck around to, to see that <laughs> no, actually no thank you immersive theater um smokers loud <laughs> So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon. Wow. It's a big one, Will. We see one of the holy grails of cinema. It's Joe Dante's The Movie Orgy. Um, If you don't know what it is, it's a four and a half hour... I guess, like, jokey compilation reel that Joe Dante did in 1968 while he was in college. It was famously lost for a long time. Me and Will were able to watch it, and we discuss it on the Patreon episode. Mm-hmm. So check that out. It's $5 a month, and you can become a member by going to patreon.com slash club. What are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we will be discussing, at long last, the Coen Brothers. Oh, yeah, man. Raising Arizona, Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. I have them all up on on the walls of my um, (laughs) dorm room. (laughs) Well, actually, we will be talking about their most beloved movies, the best Coen Brothers films, Intolerable Cruelty. (laughs) Oh, no. The Lady Killers. Mm. And also... Burn After Reading. I feel like we could also talk about Hail Caesar as well, because people like that movie, but I feel it was a very muted reaction. Yeah. So Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty are the consensus, universally agreed upon worst Coen Brothers movie. It's somebody's favorite Coen Brothers movie, isn't it? Like some contrarian out there. Maybe. And yeah. uh, Burn After Reading is a divisive one. Mm-hmm. So There was like a, a stretch in the Coen Brothers career and it was kind of when I was coming up as a cinephile, which was like, they're making these movies because it feels like they have to make them. Mm-hmm. Like, they have to put something out in the world. Yeah. And then they came roaring back with No Country for Old Men. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm excited to explore these movies, and we'll discuss the Coen brothers as well, but they've been talked about to death yeah. everywhere. So um, we're going to try to get it from a different unfunny angle. We'll have to tune in to find out. <laughs> Until they manage us to I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here. Just need to interrupt for a moment to remind you, if you haven't yet, to follow us on Twitter. We're at IMPRT Cinema Club. You can also follow us on Facebook just by searching The Important Cinema Club. And I just want to let people know this is their last chance to become a $10 newsletter subscriber on Patreon to be able to receive the July edition of the newsletter. 
Previous issues have included such articles as how to pick a comedy film for your friends, the different types of action films, and answers to all sorts of eternal cinema questions. So to become a $10 subscriber, just go to patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And if you haven't yet, make sure to check out the important cinema club discord server, which is a chat room where important cinema club fans get together and talk about whatever's on their mind. It's available to all $5 and up Patreon subscribers, and you can access it through your important cinema club Patreon page. And I would also like to thank new Patreon subscribers, which include Ellen, Kevin Roy, Alex Kleiss, Sean White, Jeremy Keyes, Rick Katchka, and CWW. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We couldn't keep doing this show without you. And now, back to our regular scheduled programming. While we're on the subject of Klaus Kinski, uh, we've got his autobiography, Kinski Uncut, here. And here's a passage I enjoy from it. That piece of Hollywood shit with Billy Wilder, buddy, buddy, is over. Thank God. No outsider can imagine the stupidity, blustering hysteria, authoritarianism, and paralyzing boredom of shooting a flick for Billy Wilder. The so-called actors, in quotes, are simply trained poodles who sit up on their hind legs and jump through hoops. I thought the insanity would never stop, but I got a shitload of money. From now on, you'll do serious movies with Herzog and comical ones with me. That's what Billy Wilder told me when we first met at the La Scala restaurant. But I think the reverse is true. For a long time now, Billy Wilder's so-called comedies have been uptight and anything but funny, and your laughter freezes in the corners of your mouth. And Herzog's so-called serious flicks would be unintentionally funny if I did what he wanted me to do. (laughs) Classic. I mean, I love... When, like, an actor, like, rags on a movie that he was in, like, so in the good. biographies. Yeah. Can you think of any other ones that, like, famously, they, like, the actor's like, ah, this piece of shit. Well, I remember reading Marlon Brando's autobiography, and he has he a chapter. He wrote an autobiography? Yeah, he did. he did. I did not know that. I'm always shocked by, like, the actors that, like, wrote autobiographies. Like, I wandered in the York University Library in a section I never did, which is, like, the actor section and mm. theater stuff. And I found, like, so many ridiculous biographies. I sent you some photos of some of them. Yeah. Like, our favorite uh, Canadian actor from... Uh, Marie Dressler, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who had her own autobiography. She had other books about her as well, other than the one that we have. Yeah. <laughs> Just baffling. Who's reading all these Marie Dressler books? <laughs> well, I uh, cracked open her autobiography. The first person I feel, like, in 50 years <laughs> as you feel the spine and like the the moths go up from it so marlon brando oh well he has a chapter in there talking about working on a countess for, from hong kong mm-hmm. for charlie chaplin and i uh, did not get along with chaplin do you read actors biographies very much that's like the one book i never reach for the one section in bmv i skip over yeah. when i look at the used books very rarely why is that is that because we're just not interested that much in actors versus like writers directors anybody else yeah, I think so. Actors aren't sort of the authors of the movie for mm. the most part. I mean, Marlon Brando is different mm-hmm. because because he actually changed acting. But yeah, for the most part, it's like actors' autobiographies. I mean, they're notoriously not good. Yeah, and they're always ghostwritten. Yeah. And it's often because they're in a slump or the end of their career. Mm-hmm. So they need to put something out that will like bring attention to them again. Or they're just boring, because you're like, well, you don't have anything to say. Yeah, they're just or, or nice stories. Yeah, you don't want to, like, 
tell us the real truth about some stuff. Like, I remember um, I was reading a stuntman's biography, and he wouldn't name any names. And it's like, what's the point of me reading this if yeah. you're not going to tell me what project this was on? Because that gives the context that I need. Nobody wants just a nice story about a nice guy. <laughs> no. no. They want, like, the bad stuff that goes on. Like yeah. Burt Ward. <laughs> yeah. Well, Burt Ward's autobiography is, a, is great. What is it called again? It's called Boy Wonder My Life in Tights. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's basically pornographic. It's, it's just about <laughs> all the women that he and Adam West had sex with while making uh, Batman. Did Adam West have a reaction when that book came out? He, he was not pleased. Oh, really? Yeah. But didn't he go to uh, star in um, Return of the Batcave with Burt Ward anyway? Or? I mean, I guess they patched things up. You know, they had, uh, it, it was it was in their best interest to be seen together at conventions, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So maybe they got, maybe he apologized. I don't and know. never forget Mickey Rooney's biography. Which I haven't actually read. What? I could have sworn you no. would have read that. But I did read the past where he was talking about sucking on uh, Ava Gardner's tits, I think it was. Like milk duds. Like milk duds. <laughs> yeah, that has been burned into my memory. Hideous. Oh, man. Doing an episode on Mickey Rooney? Let's do it. Yeah, what? there's probably so many stories to explore. Well, we would have to talk about his reality show, Meet the Roonies. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd actually have to watch, um, what was it, uh, Andy Hardy? Or what was the name? Oh, of- yeah, one of those Andy Hardy. Okay, let's do him after the Coen Brothers. Yeah, honestly. because he uh, like was so big as a kid and then it's just kind of like they couldn't get rid of him (laughs) I was the biggest star in the world from 1939 to 1940 I will never forget during the Oscar just cutting to Mickey Rooney like in a balcony somewhere (laughs) oh yeah anytime the death montage was about to come up they would cut to Mickey. <laughs> He's not dead. He's still alive. My parents told me an amazing story about uh, going to see Mickey Rooney on tour towards the end of his life. What? It was... Why? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? Well, you know, nostalgic feeling do your parents have for Mickey Rooney? I think they kind of went, like, on a lark, basically. Yeah. It's like, oh, Mickey Rooney's in town. Let's, uh... <laughs> that would never cross and, my... And there was less they to do back then. <laughs> just had to, like... Uh, this was very near the end, so they basically just like wheeled Mickey out for his bits, and <laughs> but his wife did most of it. Mm. Like his wife was uh, the 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 Dynamo who was mm. singing and dancing through most of it. By the way, okay, uh, I don't want to burn all my Mickey Rooney material, <laughs> but did you see him testifying before Congress about elder abuse? <laughs> I know the end you of talked life? about this before. Well, I'm going to talk about it again <laughs> because. Obviously, elder abuse is horrible. And, and it's it's and it's something that is not treated seriously as well. Yeah, I mean the Stan Lee stuff came out recently. Yeah, terrible. That he was being like completely abused for the last few decades of his life. Yeah. But seeing Mickey Rooney testify before Congress, like old hams die hard. <laughs> so he he was like, yeah, you feel like a a prisoner in your own home. <laughs> yeah, it was his um. He was uh, Andy Hardy all over again. Yeah, I was going to say it's um, uh, the Jerry Lewis movie, his Max Rose <laughs> performance, because he never really got one. I mean, if we do a Mickey Rooney episode, we have to watch that weird Spanish film where he plays a billionaire who decides to act like a baby for the last oh, few years of I his life. Oh, I would love to, yeah. You never heard about that? Yeah. He spends most of the film in a diaper, and he's like sucking on women's breasts. Oh, nice. Yep. Your eyes just lit up, and you're like, but it's not available in English. It's only available dubbed in Spanish. I'm sure the images speak very strongly. Yeah. <laughs> 